When I discussed in episode 23 the purpose of the U.S. military, it was because we seemed to have lost what that purpose was. That concern of mine continues. As the world continues to become less settled, and Russia and China and others continue to take steps poised to disturb the state of the globe and international affairs, taking another listen to this episode that discusses our military's role seems appropriate. Current policy changes in our armed forces, funding debates, and other things, sadly, have not been focused on best providing for a strong, able, and unbeatable military force, but in appeasing loud voices and their cries for social justice and experimentation among our servicemen and women. Let's hope these changes are soon, if not changed completely, at least paired with wise investment in training and weaponry. Enjoy this episode, and don't forget, new episodes start June 22nd. I am Solus Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man. While sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different, and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on June 20th, 2021, Father's Day, a day to celebrate the strong men who made us who we are, and I certainly celebrate my father, a military veteran and hero. Episode 23, The United States Military, Its History, Purpose, and Current Risks to Its Effectiveness. A national military is necessary for the defense of sovereign nations. That does not mean that there have not been countries without organized and active military forces. But in order to defend against foreign threats, a military is necessary. Given that the colonies fought a revolution to gain independence and to establish the United States of America, it was clear a standing military would be necessary to preserve this young nation. And it has remained so. From colonial militia to the Continental Army to today's military, it cannot be forgotten that any military exists to serve one goal, to protect the people it was formed to protect. Understanding that the British were not going to allow, without a fight, the separation of the colonies from the British Empire, what would become the United States Army was actually formed before the formal creation of the country. On June 14, 1775, it became apparent that a more organized fighting force was needed, as the colonial militia and Minutemen could be riled to fight out of emotion, namely anger, but their ranks would quickly dissipate following an active conflict, and it was hard to identify any centralized control of these men. The Continental Army included members from all 13 colonies, and were sent throughout the colonies, 
minimizing what had been more of an allegiance to one state or region than to the budding new nation. George Washington would be the first commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Taking charge of this new army on July 3, 1775, George Washington described his men. These men, he said, were a mixed multitude of people, under very little discipline, order, or government. He went on to explain that discipline is the soul of an army. It makes small numbers formidable, procures success to the weak, and esteem to all. It took time to organize, train, and instill discipline in this new fighting force. And it was the Continental Army's success or failure in battle that would determine how rallied to participate the various local militiamen were to be. The same was true for the Navy and Marines, also both established originally as the Continental Navy and Marine Corps later in 1775. But under the Articles of Confederation, then the guiding document of our new nation, it was the states and not any national body that were responsible for actually raising an army. And commanders in each region still had great independence from any real centralized control by George Washington. This mistake, this lack of central control in the original configuration of the newly independent colonies, would be corrected in the U.S. Constitution, as the Articles of Confederation were shown not to be workable. Battles with the British would rage on for some time after the Declaration of Independence signing in 1776, with the war with Britain officially ended on September 24, 1783. But post-war problems continued to call into question the new government originally formed under those Articles of Confederation. Put in place in 1777, problems with this new government structure started to show nearly immediately, and it was such a loose tie among the various states that civil war was sure to break out if something more unifying was not put in its place. But it was not just the need for a more effective national military that was on the minds of our founders when crafting what would be the U.S. Constitution and the provisions addressing an army and navy. It was also the balancing of this need against serious concerns about a military that may be too powerful, so powerful that it could effectively stage a coup over any newly established government. It is at least in part for this reason, and the fact that the Articles of Confederation vested all authority in a Continental Congress, with no separate executive and judicial branches, that separating the power over a standing military among the branches was deemed necessary which would also include civilian control of such military force by the President of the United States. When completed and ratified, the Constitution divided military power by making the President, quote, Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. It then gave to Congress the duty to raise and support armies, provide and maintain a navy, make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, as well as to have the authority of calling forth the militia. As a part of these split authorities, the ability to create additional branches of the military existed, and in later years, the formation of the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. Air Force completed what makes up today the United States Armed Forces, along with the most newly created Space Force. The Founders' establishment of a separation of powers over the armed forces ensured the existence of a standing military while giving no one person or branch total control over it. And this unique system and the powerful military built under it quickly rose to become the most powerful and feared military in the world, the keeper of freedoms and a means of providing peace through strength. 
From the War of 1812 to the Mexican War to the Civil War and beyond, the increasing might and organization of the U.S. military cannot be denied. What began as a loose collection of former colonial army, militiamen, and others with no strong feelings of national pride and affiliation became a military force able to defeat the likes of the Ottoman Empire in Germany in World War I, Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy, and the Empire of Japan in World War II, the Communist Soviet Union in the Cold War, through military spending and increasing capabilities that drove the Soviets essentially into bankruptcy just trying to keep up, and to combat terrorism around the world. The strength of our armed forces, like the strength of our nation, comes from the willingness to learn from history, to invest in technological advancements, and to do what is necessary to win, and to do so knowing that our men and women are on the side of good, the side of freedom and prosperity, and a nation unlike any other, one that is worth fighting for. Unfortunately, being on top only leads to a desire of many, sometimes among your own, to seek to diminish your strength. Due to unheard of mid-20th century prosperity and the ability successfully to achieve peace through strength, our citizens were able to turn their focus internally to begin seeking changes to our culture and to our systems. Many of those campaigns were noble, fighting for equal rights regardless of race, fighting for equal opportunity for women. But many of those movements were overtaken by those who no longer, or never did, believe in the American system. This turn away from democracy and capitalism and towards socialism and communism in the style of Karl Marx has slowly eroded our strength in all of our systems, and the military has not been spared. When the public's national pride began to wane in the 1960s, and those in positions of influence, including educators, legislators, and journalists, began touting principles counter to our own, a problem that has accelerated to such a degree in just the past few years it's difficult to grasp. We stopped allowing our military to win wars. We stopped focusing on what was best for our nation and how to succeed in any military mission, and began caring too much whether we were liked around the world. Vietnam, for example, is an embarrassing case study on what happens when you send a capable military into another region of the world against a much weaker enemy, but fail to adopt policies and strategies that would allow your military to succeed in its mission. Rather than do what was necessary to win that conflict and stop the advance of communism into Southeast Asia, our government allowed communist sympathizers at home to bully government officials into doing nothing but putting our men and women in harm's way with no real plan for success. Have no doubt, the United States military could have decidedly been victorious in Vietnam, but our own citizens would not allow it, and our leaders bent to the loudest voices. Though we had a little bit of a comeback of sorts during President Reagan's term and his willingness to put the funds back into the military necessary to outspend the Soviet Union and finally put an end to the Cold War, and we did learn some from our mistakes in Vietnam when entering the first Iraq conflict in the 1990s, you can start to see a trend where more recent conflicts are again suffering from a willingness to tie the hands of our military and to make policy decisions that put the armed forces at risk in an effort to appease those critical of necessary military operations. That is not to say that every military campaign or action has been the correct one, or that citizens should not make their concerns and positions known to those making these decisions. But it is to say that whenever our leaders decide to put our service members into a foreign land, they must always do so with the goal of being successful, and there must be a clear goal that defines that success. It appears that all too often, our elected officials and our military leadership 
are ready to kowtow to a group of our citizenry or some group of international influences whose support the military does not have and never has nor will. It is this group that views our military presence around the world, and likely the existence of it at all, as a threat rather than a benefit that is being allowed to dictate current military standards and operations. It is clear many of our elected officials have no grasp of what it means to serve in the military or to see active combat and don't have respect for those who served and are serving. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez actually likened her hiding in a congressional office building during the January 6th incident at the Capitol as akin to serving in war. And new Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock said you could not serve God and the military, essentially saying Christians could not serve their country, a position apparently embraced by Representative Ilhan Omar. I might remind these elected officials that a soldier's sacrifice is one of the greatest religious acts of sacrificing yourself for others. And this hostility to the military among the left is not new. In 2005, who could forget Senator Dick Durbin comparing our own U.S. service members to Nazis, Soviets, and Pol Pot, who killed 1.5 million in death camps? Durbin was criticizing the war on terror, but he took down our military service members with his criticism. The left's hatred for the, hatred for the military is no secret. From Jane Fonda posing happily atop North Vietnamese anti-aircraft missiles used to shoot down our own pilots in Vietnam, to Michael Moore calling snipers cowards, to John Kerry, our current climate change czar and former senator, making this insulting comment. You know, education, if you make the most of it, if you study hard and you do your homework and you make an effort to be smart, uh, you, you can do well. If you don't, you get stuck in Iraq, suggesting that only if you're stupid would you end up serving in the military. It is clear that the left generally views those in the military as some lesser class of citizen. It is for that reason, at least in part, that the left sees no issue with forcing diversity and inclusion on the military, despite the risks it poses to the overall safety and success of our fighting men and women. That too few in our country now have any direct contact with military service members is another part of the problem. There is not an understanding what these men and women sacrifice. Where earlier in our nation's history, a majority of Americans had direct contact with military service members, that is no longer the case. In 2018, for example, just 7% of Americans were veterans, and fewer younger Americans are joining the ranks of our armed forces. This lack of contact with anyone with actual military experience allows many to fail to recognize what the military is and what its purpose always must be. It can never be forgotten, as, as Rush Limbaugh often reminded his listeners, that it is the job of our military to kill people and break things. That our founders saw the wisdom in placing control of such an entity in the hands of a civilian leader and with divided authority among two governmental branches is an intended guarantee that the military will do just that, but for our own protection and not against us. Throughout all the different machinations of how the new nation would be protected, and whether that would be via standing national armies or state militia, George Washington continued to point out that no military force can be effective without training and discipline. From George Washington to Douglas MacArthur, true military leaders have always known that training and discipline is what distinguishes an army from an armed mob. Training and discipline in the military has changed over time, and much more so in recent times. Discipline is necessary if it is to be expected that members of the military will carry out their duties. No matter how small or large a duty appears, if any service member fails to perform his own, the entire cohesive unit is jeopardized. One need only to look to recent conflicts 
to see that where military organizations lack discipline, they lack organization and effectiveness and are weak in conflict. The disorganized Iraqi military put up little resistance to our well-trained and disciplined men and women. Discipline also provides unity and cohesion. In an effective military, each member cannot be performing his duties for his own benefit. He must perform in a way that's best for the unit. To have the necessary discipline, military servicemen and women must be properly trained. General Douglas MacArthur once said, In no other profession are the penalties for employing untrained personnel so appalling or so irrevocable as in the military. And Lieutenant General Ace Collins similarly said, It is astounding what well-trained and dedicated soldiers can accomplish in the face of death, fear, physical privation, and an enemy determined to kill them. For you see, a failure to create a trained and disciplined military risks death to its members and failure in its mission. Training is not for training's sake, and it is not something where standards can be different for different members in the military. It is imperative for the lives of those serving and the success of the military as a whole that the highest of standards are required of all. Military service is not a right. It is a privilege. And sometimes it is a duty. When an active draft is in place, the military branches can choose from the best and most able-bodied. When the military is, as it is now, an all-voluntary military, it is imperative that high standards are required to ensure that the force in place can meet the necessary tasks of defending the nation. Unfortunately, in recent years, so much has changed in the standards and culture of our American military branches that we are losing too many service members who no longer believe those in charge are doing what is necessary to provide for this training and discipline and the resulting cohesion and effectiveness that is necessary to allow them to participate in conflict is being jeopardized. A lowering of standards to allow more access into military service does not strengthen our military. It weakens it. The military is not a social experiment, and it is not a place to test out diversity for diversity's sake. Criteria such as age, physical fitness, and more are all relevant things to consider when deciding whether someone is fit for military service. The focus of military recruiters, trainers, and leadership should at all times be cohesion and military readiness. Changes in standards to seek diversity or inclusion, for example, overlook one critical concept. That the purpose of training and readiness in the military is to strip the military service member of individuality when in combat. Any diversity that would require inclusion doesn't fit with that mold. You must make a person a part of a cohesive unit. Diversity, and the insistence on recognition of it, does just the opposite. It instead identifies people by their individual and different characteristics that in a properly prepared military force should have melted into the background to go unnoticed. All that should matter is that each member of the team can perform and will perform his job. And there are different kinds of diversity, some that likely can exist well in a military environment and others that likely cannot. It is the latter category that is of great concern in today's military. Unfortunately, whether under some guise to increase diversity or the unwillingness of so many young people voluntarily to serve their country, which should come as no surprise, given the current assault on the nation as some form of evil imperial empire, the political choices being imposed on today's military threatens our standing in the world and our very survival. So what does diversity mean to the military, and how has it gone wrong? From President Truman's desegregation of military forces to the admission of women, gay, and transgender members into the service branches, it has not all gone smoothly, and we have often sacrificed our nation's defense at the feet of social change and social justice. This desegregation by race was a benefit to the military. 
Some of these most recent moves toward inclusion are not. There is no issue more worthy of critique than women in the military. This is not because women do not belong there as a general rule, but because physical limitations make women unable to perform many of the necessary duties our service members must perform to be effective. No matter how many times someone cries for women's rights or equality for women or how far some may be willing to go to claim there is no such thing as a woman or a man or that gender is somehow fluid, there are clear genetic differences between men and women. That is an indisputable fact. And because of those differences, the biggest danger lies in the adoption of different standards for women and in any affirmative action style policies that would place women in positions not based solely on merit. Until this year, and for some time, the Army, for example, has had what it calls gender-neutral physical standards for its service members. This is a proper standard, because what that means is that women, men, and members of any other self-proclaimed gender identity must all satisfy the same physical requirements. The result of this gender-neutral policy, however, is that most women in the Army cannot meet those standards. So the only way to continue to allow them to remain in their positions is either to lower the standards for everyone or create separate standards for women. Neither of these choices is good for the success and capability of our military. The issue with taking either of these actions should be clear. Lower standards creates a less effective military, and one where trust and cohesion are less likely, as the members of various military teams will not have confidence that all their team members can fulfill their physical obligations. Indeed, a recent Pentagon study revealed that when taking the Army Combat Fitness Test, 65% of women soldiers failed, while only 10% of male soldiers did. Just last fall, the numbers were slightly different, with 54% of women failing and just 7% of men. And now, Congress is wanting to change various military regulations to remove this test as a factor in deciding promotions. The lowering of standards is a disservice to those putting their lives on the line for us all. The Army's first female infantry officer views this kind of lowering of standards as a threat, an immediate harm to the Army. Captain Kristen Greist explained, The entire purpose of creating a gender-neutral test was to acknowledge the reality that each job has objective physical standards to which all soldiers should be held, regardless of gender. The intent was not to ensure that women and men have an equal likelihood of meeting those standards. Rather, it is incumbent upon women who volunteer for the combat arms profession to ensure they are fully capable and qualified for it. To not require women to meet equal standards in combat arms will not only undermine their credibility, but also place those women, their teammates, and the mission at risk. And she's right. Of course, despite the obvious need for a physically strong and fit fighting force, and the need to have fully qualified service members, the branches of the military have not escaped the overall attack on our systems and the Marxist attempts to create the same types of equity being pushed in civilian society, now being seen to be forced upon our military. And these attempts at inclusion in the military without regard for military effectiveness have caused damage. In 2016, a Heritage Foundation Index of Military Strength determined that our military was only marginally able, with a trend toward weak. And this status has not changed in the intervening years. The 2020 Military Strength Index from the Heritage Foundation had this to say, The U.S. does not have the necessary force to meet a two-major regional contingency, a two-MRC, requirement, and it is not ready to carry out its duties effectively. Consequently, as we have seen during the past few years, the U.S. finds itself increasingly challenged by major competitors such as China and Russia and the destabilizing effects of terrorist and insurgent elements operating in regions that are of substantial interest to the U.S. This index looks at all kinds of 
things related to the military, including equipment, manpower, training, capabilities, capacity, and readiness. And the conclusions are not comforting. The importance for the United States to be able to support two simultaneous major regional conflicts was the result of a 1993 bottom-up review, a BUR, conducted to determine what was needed from our military, given the changing landscape after the end of the Cold, after the end of the Cold War. Additional quadrennial reviews, QDRs, were conducted in 1997, 2010, and 2014, with a new national defense strategy replacing the QDRs in 2018. But the continuing theme with all of these reports is that to be effective, our military must be able to meet major challenges more than one at a time, and that we currently face four key adversaries, not including terrorist organizations that aren't affiliated with a nation-state. These four adversaries identified most recently were China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. If we can't address more than one of them at the time, then we do not have the capability to truly defend our nation. When considering these recent assessments, do not when, when you consider these recent assessments, do not view the state of today's military as able to meet multiple simultaneous threats, and that other evaluations now do not view the U.S. military as a presumed winner in certain conflicts, including artificially simulated conflicts with China, it's clear the changes made to the military establishment in the past two to three decades have not brought about positive change to serve the military's sole mission, to defend the United States. And we cannot overlook President Biden's own recent statements to those at Royal Air Force Base Mildenhall in England during his first international trip. We're speaking to our service members. He identified the biggest threat facing the military, suggesting the biggest threat they will face as members of the military as global warming. It's clear from that statement alone that the ability to fight and win wars or defend our nation if attacked is no longer a military priority in Biden's Department of Defense. And that should make us all fearful for the future. As Congressman Dan Crenshaw said, for too long, progressive Pentagon staffers have been calling the shots for our warfighters and spineless military commanders have let it happen. Now we're going to expose you. And I sure hope the likes of Dan Crenshaw, Tom Cotton, and others do just that. Perhaps the obvious priorities of the Biden administration further demonstrate that the largest threat to our military might is, as so much is today, coming from within. And the risk of destruction from within is often a nation's and a military's biggest threat. General MacArthur warned us some time ago of this risk. He said, I am concerned for the security of our great nation, not so much because of any threat from without, but because of the insidious forces working from within. He went on to explain, Talk of imminent threat to our national security through the application of external force is pure nonsense. Our threat is from the insidious forces working from within, which have already so drastically altered the character of our free institutions, those institutions we proudly called the American way of life. Unfortunately, the current trend toward wokeness is that insidious force. It is a Marxist infiltration of society from top to bottom. And since the time of General MacArthur, it has done such damage that we now face threats not only from these insidious internal forces, but also from outside. Recent policy announcements and leaked internal operations are exposing a new woke military, where military training shifts away from learning military history in order to understand strategies, past missteps, and basic military development and operation, to now focusing on critical theory and diversity. The military has lost sight of its purpose. Just as the left has infiltrated educational institutions, the media establishment, and the bureaucracy, it has, through the years, also worked to install in high military positions those willing to forsake military strength for political correctness, or what today is often referred to as wokeness. 
Rather than expecting soldiers to meet high standards, the military is more and more focused on equity, a misplaced idea that all are entitled to serve and that all are equally able to do so. This dangerous shift in military focus has come to the attention of many holding elected office, namely those who themselves served and understand the risk to our security by a destruction and incremental dismantling of the military structure that made our fighting force the most feared in the world. Hearing of troubling changes to the training being imposed on our soldiers, Senator Tom Cotton and Representative Dan Crenshaw, both military veterans themselves, opened up lines of communication for our military members to disclose what is going on inside today's military. The reports they received are numerous and shocking and should terrify anyone who believes, as we all should, that the strength of our military is a critical, critical component to our nation's protection and to peace around the world. As Senator Cotton described communications his office had received, he said this, One Marine told us a military history training session was replaced with mandatory training on police brutality, white privilege, and systemic racism. He reported that several officers are now leaving his unit citing that training. Another service member told us that their unit was required to read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, which claims white people raised in Western society are conditioned in a white supremacist worldview. Military units reportedly were required to engage in a privilege walk where members of a flight wing were made to segregate themselves by race and gender in order to rank themselves by perceived privilege based on these classifications. Far from a unified and cohesive unit, or the goals of military desegregation in the 20th century, this kind of activity accomplishes just the opposite. It is a segregation. It is a lack of cohesion. Even a Congressional Research Service report on the efforts of diversity in the military had to acknowledge that divisions by such groups can make those involved more apt to rely only on those in their own classification. But how does that build an effective and unified fighting force? The answer is it doesn't. Critical race theory training, training on white privilege, and more is now becoming part of everyday military life for many. Reports are snowballing of the negative impact these activities are having on morale, the resulting desire to separate early from military service of those who are subjected to such training, and an increased level of distrust among groups, exactly what you cannot have in a successful military organization. And Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer is putting the truth out there with his recently published book, Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest, and the Unmaking of the American Military. Of course, following release of his book and his appearance on podcasts to discuss what's actually happening inside our military, he was fired as the commander of the U.S. Space Force unit he was in charge of. As more and more former military members come forward to speak against this failure of the Pentagon brass, it should become clear how much has already been lost on pointless progressive policies at the expense of military readiness. These decisions are literally life and death, for those still willing to serve. Flight suits for pregnant military av aviators who can't fly while pregnant to the point of needing such uniforms. Army recruitment ads that focus on the military member with two mothers as a sign of that branch's inclusivity. And the Navy's reading list that includes a number of books that are truly anti-American. When a nation's military redefines its priority from winning wars to inclusion, it has lost sight of its actual mission. It has also lost sight of its mission when its training is sending the message that something is wrong with the very country these service members have signed up to defend. But things within the armed forces may be even worse than we could have imagined. A movement within the Department of Defense seeks to root out those in their ranks who simply disagree with them. It's true, a soldier should not openly voice disagreement with a superior, but that does not deprive members of the military of their entire First Amendment rights when it comes to voting and supporting policies the soldier believes are best for America. Let us not forget that these soldiers, too, take an oath to defend the U.S. Constitution. 
and they must be allowed some avenue to speak out when the Constitution itself is under attack from within their ranks. The left knows a majority of military members do not support its agenda, and that the only way the political indoctrination, not the indoctrination of an individual into a cohesive unit, but the political indoctrination underway in the military can work, is to weed out and shut up those who would challenge policies that actually put the military and its members in harm's way. It is for that reason the leadership of the left embedded in our military chains of command have now even considered hiring outside companies to monitor the speech of our soldiers. The essential division now being intentionally sewn into military training is just the kind of things honorable service members must be able to speak out against, or the success and capability of the military will be undermined. Conformity for cohesion is one thing. Conformity to a set of principles that are both anti-American and that serve to divide rather than unite our fighting forces, just as the left is doing in civilian society, does not have at its goal the improvement of the military, but, but with all systems, it is an attack on them, seeking their total destruction. What had become a unified United States military is now intentionally put into training programs where they are separated by race and gender, where they are asked to see each other's differences and not to focus on becoming a united unit, essentially by turning servicemen and women against each other, by making them more suspicious of those with whom they serve, the left can do what it has sought to do for decades and allow the decay of our United States armed forces. The armed forces are not an organization for inclusion, for inclusion's sake. We are not able to be, nor are we entitled to be included. It is a special place for the best and strongest among us to put their lives on the line to defend our freedoms. A fail failure to place strength over inclusion risks losing the nation and its freedoms altogether. But it is not just this forced wokeness that threatens our military's place in the world. It is our own leaders' willingness to endorse and promote policies that will serve only to further weaken our military branches. A recent Wall Street Journal editorial recognized the risk we now face. With President Biden's proposed budget now in the public sphere, it's clear the military is not a priority. The worst priority decisions may relate to the U.S. Navy, where with only about 300 ships, fewer than China's 350-ship fleet, there's no real focus on replenishing soon-to-be-retired ships or to ensure our Navy can stand up to those of adversarial countries should the time come we need to do just that. And as the same editorial concluded, the choice America is facing is not whether to buy more ships instead of tanks. It is whether to defend itself adequately or pretend to do so while shrinking defense to fund an ever-growing social welfare state. Adversaries can see the trend, even if the White House would rather not acknowledge it. As always, thank you for listening. From the beginning of our nation and well before, a standing military to defend against foreign invaders was key to a nation's survival. Now it appears we are facing dangerous enemies from within, and if we lose the battle internally for the soul of the military, we may lose the soul of America. For who else will stand to sacrifice his own life for her, if not our fighting men and women? Not to call too much on the observations of General Douglas MacArthur on this subject, but it's worth restating what may be his most important observation, and that is that the soldier above all others prays for peace, for it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Alexis de Tocqueville was also familiar with the establishment of military forces in war, and he recognized the difficulty of war for free societies. He rightfully explained, There are two things which a democratic people will always find very difficult, to begin a war and to end it. He's correct. War is never the desired result, but the avoidance of war is accomplished only by the creation and sustaining of an accomplished, well-trained, and disciplined military. We are losing that defense, 
And if we are to protect and regain it, we must return to policies that ensure we recruit, train, and retain the best men and women into the branches of our armed services, without lowering standards to accomplish diversity for diversity's sake, at the expense of military readiness, and at the expense of the very lives of those who have chosen to serve on our behalf. Next week, I will discuss the First Amendment's Freedom of Religion Clause, With recent Supreme Court decisions, the shutting down of churches during the pandemic, the pending Equality Act, and more to discuss America's changing views on religion and the threats to our nation if we continue to move further away from a true guarantee of the right freely to exercise religion. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2021.